butterfly in the sky. Okay, so my name is Connor. I go by he, him pronouns. And yeah, I'm excited for this next chapter. I just finished it today. And I've listened to the accompanying David Harvey lecture, but haven't taken a whole lot of notes. Um, but yeah, excited to see what we what we talk about because there's a lot of ground to cover in this chapter, I think. All right. Um, I'm Faiz. I go by he, him pronouns. Um, yeah, I didn't actually manage to finish the chapter. I read the first, like, the one-third of it and watched a David Harvey lecture. I finished it just about half an hour ago or a bit more. So I'm excited to actually discuss this because it'll help uh, condense all the information I tried to shove in in the past four hours. I'm, I'm right there with you. I was, um, like, reading and then falling asleep and then waking up and reading. <laughs> uh, so... My name is uh, Martin, and uh, yeah, also, I mean, I, I made a lot of highlights, but I don't have a lot of notes for this uh, this chapter. I think supposedly, I think probably what we're going to spend the most time on is the, the first section, just because he does a lot of demystification. So I'm glad that, I'm glad that you guys are in the same boat that I am, because uh, I actually didn't finish the chapter, and... Uh, most of what I have read was done today. Um, so, uh, but I actually really did enjoy what I read so far. It was like a lot and um, really condensed, but I felt like it kind of solidified what we'd already read in chapter one and two. So, um, and kind of like applies the, like the concepts that we learned like abstractly to things that we can identify with now. So I'm excited to see what you guys learned from it um, so that uh, you can help me learn too. All right. And I am Andrew, he, him pronouns from Vermont. And I took a crazy amount of notes on this chapter. I, I went a little bit overboard, I'll say. So like, I'm ready to get into it because I really enjoyed it. Like the whole process of like the metamorphosis of commodities and, and the way Barter transitions to exchange transitions to the creditor debtor relationship. I, like I loved it, so I had a lot of fun, and I'm ready to to get into it. All right. Oh, and also, um, my name's Jess, and uh, I prefer she/her pronouns. <laughs> All right. Um, so I don't know how did you guys do it last time? Uh, did you uh, just start discussing, or did you go through the questions, or how do you want to do it this time? Well, I think since we have the questions posted, we could go through those first so that we kind of know the direction mm -hmm. we want to take. Here. All right. So does everybody have the questions in front of them? And I, I'll read the first one out. Sure. All right. So the first one was, uh, what circumstances discussed in this chapter may cause a general rise in the price of commodities? Did anybody like have specific answers to that or would like to have a go at it? Um, I guess I can give a go at that one. Um, so that's like the part of the chapter where he starts talking about like inflation and deflation of like the value of the uh, universal equivalent commodity and how scarcity of commodities can affect like the what they call the velocity of the currency. So most other arguments in the book, he he says like, OK, we're going to imagine that this is just a baseline. It's it's. A, a standard set thing but it's something that we always acknowledge is you know fluctuating up and down yeah um i wrote like a bit of notes because i i like i worked off the questions since i had so little time so i decided to just 
you know, check the questions out and try to find the answers when I can in the text. Um, I found like two ways uh, rise in prices of commodities can happen. So it's basically one, if their value rises while the value of money remains constant. Two, the value of money falls while that of the commodities remain constant. So it's basically just talking about how whatever value money has given, if we assume it's the gold form, for example, if you suddenly are able have an abundance of it and its value drops, the price of the commodity will rise in accordance to that gold standard you've applied to it. And if suddenly the value of the commodity itself rises because it embodies more socially necessary labor time, but the value of money remains constant, then the price will also rise. That's what I got for that. So that's kind of what I got too from it, that last part where um, you said that like if the, if the socially valuable or social, if the social value of the, their labor time changes where the, the, uh, the, mod, the, the, the value of money does not, um, then the price actually does change. Because what I gathered from price is that that is essentially relative to, to labor value. Yeah, I was a bit like, at first I had a bit of a confusion because um, I think when we mentioned prices before, we were assuming somehow that commodities are always sold at their value. And so when the, when I first saw the question, I was like, a general rise in price, wouldn't that mean, you know, a general rise in value? But then I had to remember that we're tying it into a gold standard now. So gold is now the price. And yeah, if a value increases, its price has to increase in probably in a more like ideal condition. I don't know how when you have market or decrease. Yeah. So if we're looking at the price of gold even. Um, so if we have a more efficient mining system, then shouldn't the price go down? Because like there's less labor needing to be applied to getting the the commodity itself. I think if we have a better technology, that means the socially necessary labor time to produce the, the same amount of gold becomes less. Therefore, the price of the commodity will rise because the value of the commodity will stay the same but the value of gold suddenly dropped. So you need more gold to represent the same commodity, which means the price will rise, actually. That was the second point. It's uh, In my edition, it's on page 65, but that the value, if the price of a commodity rises, if the value of money falls, while that of the commodity remains, remains constant. I read it uh, similar to how Jess did, where he says that Whereas the, the value of the money commodity may change, its value in relation to itself is it just becomes like 200 pounds of gold now becomes worth the same as 100 pounds of gold. You mean after you suddenly get a better production system for gold, for example? Yeah, as, as, you, as there's right. less human labor embodied within the gold, the value of the gold decreases. So like it's still the representative value, it's just... Um, it says something about measuring it against yeah, itself. It's, uh, there's something between measure of value and measure of price. Well, if we think about something just like a, a product, so like like uh, mining gold, society is still going to have the same need for gold, whether we're good at mining it or not. Um, but the amount of labor we have to apply to it, if we have like really efficient systems, is significantly lower. So you can produce a lot more and you don't have to charge as much to to, con con to continue that production. So that's how I understood it is like you have to charge less to continue the production. So like the price of 
of the gold has changed now, not because of the way that society needs it, but because of the production. Jess, do you mean the price of gold, the the money commodity, or? No, um, just as a figurative commodity. So, I mean, if we want to change that and like look at the the price of paper or something, if we get better at producing paper and we can produce, you know, a million sheets of paper in the time that it used to take or the labor that it used to take to produce one, then like the need for paper in society hasn't changed, but the amount of labor applied to production of the, of the paper has changed. And so that's where the value is being modified is, is the price is being modified by the labor we have to apply to it. So the price is going down. Only if the value of money remains constant. Right. So all factors remain constant except for the amount of labor that needs to be applied to it. Yeah. It's just because like uh, in, in traditional economics, you learn interest rate goes down, inflation goes up. But he says the same, except that only for commodities where the value remains constant. Yeah, he then later mentions that their value could fluctuate the same way or like maybe it will change in proportionality to that of gold, let's say, and therefore you won't have a change in prices. Even if both if both their values change in the same proportionality, then a change in prices won't happen. Yeah, I wrote well, uh, the velocity of commodity value equal to the velocity of money value equals no change in price. Right. And some things, when they become easier to produce or require less labor to produce, are going to uh, just by nature become uh, more demanded by society. If they're just more available. Society is going to find more use for it. So it's, its value or core value itself is going to change um, often. So I think it's probably rare that, that um, all factors remain the same except for the amount of labor applied. Actually, like to me, like a when they say that um, if the if the money value remains constant, right? Because at the moment, the money value is constant, more or less all the time. Because in you have a very, very, very small fluctuation in interest rates. But isn't the money value constantly fluctuating? No, the money value, the yes. Says... The money value back then was constantly fluctuating. Nowadays, it's a lot more stable. Yeah, there's a note where he says it's a lot more stable than one would imagine. Yeah, I think this is just like a circumstantial discussion he made based on, you know, how do I, how would prices change depending on the value, like the labor embedded in, in the gold standard, like the, the money, um, gold is a money commodity and in relation to all other commodities, basically. But in general, we agree that if we are more efficient in producing gold, then the prices of commodities has to increase because the value of gold just dropped for still using gold as a money commodity in this sense. So going back to the question then, what circumstances cause a general rise in the price of commodities? It's if their value rises, the commodities themselves, while the value of money remains constant, then you have to increase the price on that commodity. Or if the value of money falls while that of commodities remain constant. How exactly would the value of money fall? Well, if we're using precious metals as our money standard, then if the socially necessary labor time embedded in one pound of gold, uh, wait, sorry, if you if for the same socially necessary labor time you you had to produce one pound of gold, you can suddenly produce two, the value. Okay, it's half in. Yeah. Okay, thank you. So, um, are we good with that question, or does anybody have any other points? I think that's good.
All right. Um, so what does Marx mean by an object which may have a price without having value? I think I reached that, but I wouldn't want to start because I'd really like to hear what you all have to say about it. I think I've got a very loose grasp on it. It seems to be when he mentions things such as, um, I think it was honor and conscience are the examples he uses. And uh, eventually you can reach a point where you can, you can sell these things, but they don't have any, um, yeah, there's no socially necessary labor time embedded in them. Yet you can sell them, therefore they have a price. Um, I mean, it exists in multiple things, I guess, nowadays, such as I heard stories about people selling jars of air on eBay, things that don't, uh, yeah, they don't have value, but yet you can sell them for a price. But I'm not sure how that comes about exactly. I have a question, like if anybody, so these jars of air, do we consider the fact that they, okay, this is stupid, but that they closed the jar and shipped it? Is there any labor embodied in that process? Like, would one consider that as labor? Yeah. Is it useless labor, though? It might be like the mud pies. Yeah, I don't know. Martin? Exactly. I don't know. You still have I to compensate someone for shipping. I guess yeah. possibly there'd be a separate shipping. Unless you're selling shipping it to price. your next-door neighbor. So if you're selling it to your next-door neighbor, you'd have to at least walk that distance, right? So the only thing basically you should be paid for is the shipping because everything else is useless labor because you're literally just... Do they get to keep the jar? Well, and this is like walking the bringing a commodity to the table thing where bringing it to the table as is absorbed in the the act itself. So like the the labor of both parties bringing something to exchange to the table is canceled out by themselves. So it's just like I would assume that bringing your jar to the neighbor to give it to them is like just not it doesn't add to or doesn't change the value of it at all. So it probably doesn't change the also like a jar has value. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the I'm jar so, itself has value. I'm very annoyed that we've um we've got to a point in society where we need to decide how much value a jar of air has got. But you know, here we are. We're in the jarred air stage of capitalism right now. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to um I mean just touch on it. I mean it, it's not maybe an answer, but just uh what I have is about uh transubstantiation because he considers the market to be like transubstantiation. He brought it up earlier in chapter one as well. Um, and he brings it up here again to sort of mystify, uh, to show how the exchange value is something mystical. It's something that appears as accidental. It's a sort of um, a representation of the magnitude of value, but at the same time, and complete abstraction. Uh, even in just the word, an ounce or a pound, it uh, transubstantiates from the accidental values of the actual material into a, a spiritual Hegelian concept of freedom, <laughs> as, <laughs> as he says, um, in just in the abstract uh, semantic representation of, of money. I like the point that uh, he made in regards to that we still use the words pound and ounce, even though they hold no meaning anymore. They're no, it's no longer the actual weight pound, but we still use it to describe what, I don't know, used to be a pound of, like, I don't know, in the case of Britain, probably the sterling pound of silver. And uh, how now we still use the word pound, even though the pound of silver back then is now worth maybe half of 
what it was. I don't actually remember the full on. Yeah, that was that was actually a really cool point about like getting into money names and how uh, like silver and gold used to have like a representative ratio of like roughly fifteen to one, but like silver or the pound as like a note is really just a representative of like a particular amount of its ratio in gold. So like it's how money names become separated from like the actual point of value that they started at. Um, oh, uh, on the question I had just one thing was uh, I heard David Harvey make this and it's, it's funny because it's a bit more of a historical um, example. Uh, I, f I don't know what they call them in, in English. I forgot uh, in Arabic, they're called Sukuk al-Ghufran, which are these um, contracts you would sell. The church would sell these contracts of, you know, you buy this much and you get into heaven. Or they would sell you a plot of land in heaven, basically. So I would say that is an object that has no value, but has a price on it, basically. That's some premium real estate in heaven. Well, you can buy stars. Like, name stars and stuff. Ooh, that's interesting. How would, how would we factor that into what we know so far? Like, naming a star. Is that basically an object that, like, we we're paying for something? We put a price on something that actually has no value well but at the same time it's almost like has the same value of going somewhere and having them tell you a story like it's just a feel-good thing you know so i don't know what is can the price of feel-good stuff <laughs> how is that affected yeah. by the market <laughs> i'm sorry i don't mean to interrupt yeah. but no sure go ahead what about like when they have people like uh you can donate to like feed this hungry kid in this like you know poverty stricken nation or something oh, like God. that, like buy a goat for someone in Peru or something like that. Oh, it's like, heavier international. Yeah, like uh, what was that thing with Sally Struthers back in the day, where it's just like you know, uh, look at these poor starving kids; they can't work. I think it's kind of like how you know the whole idea behind getting these people you know fed is so that they can continue to be what taken advantage of to like produce you know goods at like a quarter of the rate like because that's where all our labor is going into these poor impoverished countries that like are impoverished because of colonialism imperialism correct that's interesting yeah. you're actually saying that we're paying we're putting a price basically on social reproduction right yeah like we're putting a price on sending like the donation is the price uh, we'll have a cup of coffee. Us, <laughs> us feeling good like basically we put a price on our feelings and that money goes to making sure that there is a cheap labor force still available for i don't know corporations in in neo-colonial countries to be able to exploit and sell us that cup of coffee which these people basically harvested <laughs> <laughs> that that same kid exactly, is right? harvesting. <laughs> yeah. It's like <laughs> Okay, so so are are good feelings a commodity? Yes. But do they yeah, have like to okay. necessary <laughs> labor time? What's the what's the next question? Uh, what is meant by socially necessary labor time and who determines what is socially necessary and how? Oh. The good questions. Uh, I, like I determine. One. <laughs> do you want to go ahead Marty? only yeah, you. <laughs> yeah no I, I can go for socially necessary labor time sure yeah um 
what is the average uh, necessary abstract labor time needed to produce a given quantity of a commodity, right? Mm-hmm. So, wait, uh, does skilled and unskilled labor come into play when we discuss socially necessary labor time? Do we assume all is unskilled labor? Was that something? All labor is skilled labor. Skilled or unskilled? All of it is, is skilled labor. Unskilled labor is just like differentiating between between skilled and unskilled labor is like a bourgeois I found concept, my note. So. Okay, I'll give a better answer this time. So concrete labor refers to actions. Abstract labor refers to labor time. And socially necessary labor time is required to produce a commodity, which produces a use value, which is the average abstract value required to produce a given commodity. Yeah, okay, okay. So the average abstract human labor required yeah to, the average yeah, abstract yeah. uh labor yeah, you could say yeah. i mean it's basically value is is um abstract labor time true, right true. yeah yeah when he talks about the magnitude of value in this chapter he says the magnitude of value expresses the relation in social production the connection that exists between a certain article and the portion of the total labor time of society required to produce it is anyone already excited to go back to chapter one after finishing the book i did <laughs> I, I did yeah, already after this chapter. Time. I went back. Yeah, it's. Yeah, I just keep thinking about things from chapter one, and I kind of want to go through it again, but I'm not ready for all the algebra yet. So I was reading this chapter thinking, um, I don't remember who mentioned it, but uh, someone was saying Marx said he could have written the book, like arranged the chapters in any order, but just decided to do it like this. And I, I just feel like <laughs> I don't, I, I don't know another way to start. <laughs> This was already too much to start this direction. I think he took a long time to decide where to start. And uh, it was this, I don't know, this building in from like inward outwards from the inside of the system toward outwards. I don't know. Yeah, it was, a, it was about starting with the simplest com, uh, concepts and, and moving outward and building mm-hmm. upon to the more complex, um, like the inverse of building an onion, as David Harvey said. Wait, did you guys read Capital complex. or... <laughs> Shrek. Oh, <laughs> yeah. We we're uh, we're reading Capital. Yeah, we're actually just watching Shrek. Shrek. <laughs> so, all right, because like I have the companion thing that David Harvey wrote, mm-hmm. but I don't have a version of Capital. I just kind of stumbled into this. I didn't even know you guys were were doing this. I just kind of was bored and dicking around on my phone. Now I really feel like I really want to read Capital now. To do this. <laughs> oh no, yeah. <laughs> So we've all done introductions, but uh, Johnny should introduce himself. I mean, all right. Hi, everybody. I'm Johnny Samyavati. Um, long-time listener, uh, first-time caller. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Our first fan. Wait, was this is this being recorded or something right now? Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we're turning into a podcast every week. We're quite literally a podcast, dude. This is uh, so you just sorry. gave it away. This this whole thing is a gimmick to get uh, Johnny to say stupid <laughs> shit. And then, okay. It's a trap. I'm so oh. sorry. No, Don't no, sorry. no worries. You, you yeah, ask questions and stuff. That's what we're doing here. There's different people in here every week. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I mean, most of us are in here, but. See, I'm always, like, just waking up at, like, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So, like, you know, on Sunday. So, I don't know. I guess I've just been missing it every week. <laughs> yeah, because we like started Like, we've been doing three. this three weeks, right? <laughs> You're the special guest for uh, this like, episode. Oh, like, four? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we have a special guest. Nice, We've right? been doing this for, like, a month. Get yeah. out, really? Oh, shit. 
Yeah. yeah. I've honestly we, been missing it. I've like seen, a month. This is why I need to be more online. I have been missing out on this for over a month. <laughs> Nobody ever says that. <laughs> this is why I need to be more online. <laughs> because of a capital book club. Nice. But no, yeah, actually, no, that's real. true. Like, I have nobody to read this stuff with. Nobody in, like, my local... In my local DSA. Like, you know, is Marxist Leninist. Uh, that's why we're doing this. Yeah. yeah, that's how we got here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that was all our reasons, basically. Yeah, all of us really get stuck trying to read by yourself. I guess I'll you put down. Together? I guess I'll put down Revolutionary <laughs> Afghanistan since I'm like a quarter of the way through it, and then just start reading Capital. I don't, I'm like a quarter of the way through like ten different books right now. <laughs> I'm the same Everything way. Everything right I'm now. reading and is on pause right Revolutionary now. Afghanistan. Okay, like the fourth question, I don't, I didn't reach any of that. So the one where it's like Marx talks about money as a material expression and an incarnation. Can you think of other instances of ideas and social relations taking on a material expression? It's also in the, like in the, the text channel. So Andrew, I'm gonna single you out, and you have to start. Okay, I will. I will take this on. All right. So the reason um, money is a material expression, or like it's it's not a real thing. It's it's they take the money commodity, which is gold. And they break it down into whatever dollars and cents so that it's more exchangeable. But these names are disconnected from uh, the original source. Like they're, they're representative of money, but they're not money themselves because the gold commodity is still the money. And uh, one of the quotes I have somewhere in here that's really cool about that. Oh, yeah. Uh, Mark says, I know nothing of a man by knowing his name is Jacob. In the same way with regard to money every trace of value relation disappears with the names pound, dollar, franc, ducat, etc. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> I feel like we need an air horn after that. I don't know why. <laughs> Definitely. Put that in the, in the recording, please. <laughs> yeah, who had the air horn last time? Oh, that was Landlord. Oh, that was Landlord, <gasps> right. He had an air horn, yes, yes. So it's basically... The fact that we use, I don't know, these these words such as dollar and whatever without any more, like without a concrete reference to the gold that they used to be have to be in relation to or the, the precious metal, whatever it was. I mean, they're they're just representations of that metal now, like like five dollars is supposedly a representation of of whatever amount of socially necessary labor time embodied in the universal equivalent. Mm hmm. Which in this like, case, Marx always assumes is gold. Right. I think there's some point where he mentions that money is symbolic, but it's not purely symbolic. I can't elaborate on that at all. Yeah. I just remember it coming up. <laughs> well, it's not purely symbolic in that it's it's functions. Like it functions as uh, like a medium of of circulation. I think is how he describes it. Yeah, measure, it's the medium of, of circulation. And standard it's of price. Yeah, it's the grease that, you know, it greases the wheels of the process of circulation. That sounds right. That's actually about the first section, right? Like, all these questions are just mm -hmm. on the first section of that chapter, I just realized. Yeah, I actually read all of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm very confused now. Um, I think I did section two, uh, only sale and purchase, like the, uh, the metamorphosis of commodities, uh, sale and purchase. That's where I did. Um, so do you guys want to move on to the second section or does anybody have like a bit more of an elaboration on um, 
the incarnation. I could talk like an hour about the section right before section two. Like, All right, uh, go ahead. Is that where he's quoting Dante? Yeah. My notes actually right. say yeah, yeah. right before section two as just an entire note too, actually. All right, Martin. We'll give you 10 minutes of ranting about the section before section two. Go off, King. All right. So um, in the page 70, he talks at length about the mystification uh, through price. He says... Price is the money name of the labor realized in a commodity, which is like a really important sentence, I think, um, because it's it's a name, just as he said before about the two cats and Jacob. Price is a name for uh, the labor that's a commodity. So the thing is that he's beginning to, as he did in the previous chapter, sort of delineate the main difference between Marx and Ricardo's conception of money. Because Ricardo takes it as given, whereas Mark said it's mystified. There's something terrifying or disturbing. Uh, it's also why he quotes Dante right after. Um, at least, I think so. And then he continues that although price being the exponent of the magnitude of commodities value is the exponent of its exchange ratio with money, it does not follow that the exponent of this exchange ratio is necessarily the exponent of the magnitude of the commodities value, which is kind of like where we don't like reading marks because this is like an unnecessarily complicated way of saying something but then i mean if you continue on he sort of get at, gets at it more clearly that what a magnitude of value uh, does is it expresses a, a social relation that is a portion of the total labor time of society required to produce a given commodity or article uh, he says and that prices this exponent doesn't mean that it's the actual exponent of the magnitude of the value because you have this uh, incongruity between price and magnitude of value, um, which is kind of, it's not a defect, as he says, it's, it's a part of the system, right? And in, in modern economic terms, you'd say it's, a, it's sort of a, a market failure because you're not representing the actual inputs in the product or uh, what you can get on the market for it, because there is a difference uh, perhaps between the value and to the money or from the money to the value. Um, and I mean, I think what he's saying is kind of crucial here. And so I would just like to like <laughs> sort of dwell on it, right? Because this is um, where he gets into how price is an imaginary uh it's imaginary quality that we give to commodities that can be that can deviate through the difference between the money commodities uh, value to the uh, the value of the commodity itself. So you're saying basically the money value, uh, the money commodities ratio to the commodity can deviate from the commodity's actual value. Well, it's the it's exchange ratio, right, that he talks about here. Right, he does mention that in particular too. Like one thing I wrote down just about the imaginary thing is, um, so when we fix the price of a commodity in our heads, this does not suddenly mean that the commodity has taken on the role of a universal equivalent. The commodity must be actually replaced by, in this case, gold in the hands of its owner for that purpose. So even if you set a price, 
like you bring a price tag and actually put on this is worth five ounces of gold it doesn't actually mean that you can take that commodity as if it were five ounces of gold and try to exchange it everywhere you have to actually get the gold into your hand first so i think that's where the line becomes like a bit drawn between how price can be imaginary how it's like only like the money name and then in order to actually use that price you have to get the universal equivalent in your hands materially yeah i mean this is also yeah. uh in my opinion what this section that i just spent some time on that this is what it, what's crucial about this to understand is maybe for the future of if of a planned economy because in the market economy here you have a accidental as he says, more or less accidental exchange ratio between commodities and other, and the the money commodity, which can express the real magnitude, or the quantity of gold deviating from that value, according to circumstances, which is, I mean, on an economic scale, that's a disaster, right? If you have consistently uh, deviations between the actual value represented in commodities and yeah i think he talks about that more in, in the second section then when he starts saying how uh, if the market cannot contain you know the a certain commodity at its price then uh, price will have to drop even though the same socially necessary labor time is embodied in that same commodity we've suddenly dropped its price even though its price should signify its value and but now you're dropping it just because of market demand, basically, or, or, you know, because you didn't plan the production, because people basically, like the anarchy of production is that you just go to the market with your product and you have no idea if you're oversaturating it or not. Or if there is a, a, a like a hidden, um, like a hidden value discrepancy in the commodity itself that creates a, a a missing quantity of gold wait what do you mean with a hidden value discrepancy in the commodity itself so if i if i put one hour in that commodity and that one hour should equal five ounces of gold in that case where would i have a hidden discrepancy well i mean so it, it i mean that's maybe not hidden in, in in the material commodity but in its representation and the value in the price form yeah, I think the point they make is that like when this whole system is at equilibrium, the socially necessary labor time embodied in the gold is the exact same amount of socially necessary labor time embodied in the, whatever commodity you're trading it for. Whatever quantity of the commodity, just to be, I think, because uh, I ran into problems with that until I had to think of quantity of commodity. So if it takes you one hour to produce gold, and it takes you one hour to produce 20 yards of linen, the gold will be equal. The five ounces of gold will be equal to the 20 yards of linen, right? Yeah, yeah. So this is the thing that in like in, let's say, like a closed system, then the socially necessary labor time to produce gold is equal to the socially necessary labor time of commodities in relation to each other as a universal equivalent. But then this is why I wanted to dwell on this, because then there is the difference between um, commodities and money that is not uh explainable through the the socially necessary labor time because there is a exchange ratio difference in the price form itself yeah is that like the uh like the value that's embodied in the money commodity by the act of being the universal exchange itself no but it's it's not it's not between uh the values it's between the magnitude of value and price so you mean i could be embodying 
more labor than is expressed by the price, for example? Okay. Suppose two equal quantities of socially necessary labor are respectively represented by one quarter of wheat and two pounds. Two pounds is the expression of money of the magnitude of value of the quarter of wheat, also called price. If now circumstances allow this price raised to three pounds or compel it to be reduced to one pound, then although one pound and three pound may be too small or too great to express the magnitude of the wheat's value, nevertheless, they are the prices. And they are, in the first place, the form under which its value appears, that is, money. And in the second place, the exponents of its exchange ratio with money. Oh, so that's what the example is saying. That's when you say the discrepancy in the exchange ratio Yeah. is because even if we sort of, let's say, in quotations, uh, know that one quarter of wheat is worth two pounds, some situation might dictate that we sell it for one instead or three and yeah. that's where the discrepancy in the exchange ratio with money comes into the actual value that it should be represented by uh, the actual amount of money yeah so this is the thing that he talks about that if the conditions of productions don't change that we don't improve the productive power then you have the same socially necessary labor time in this um quarter of wheat but you're suddenly changing its exchange ratio with money because of price market price or like... because of the price form the circumstance depends neither on the will of the wheat producer nor on the owners of the commodities so but this is pretty like once we also uh, like uh, accept a price form we're also directly ex assuming the existence of a market and outside circumstances that will affect this price form like that is inherent in thinking of price because you know how we talked about exchange and like the universal equivalent comes from having that much exchange in a market and all that. It arises from those circumstances to start with. So whenever we're talking about here that exchange ratio and money, we're already implicitly talking about the outside circumstances that would dictate such an exchange ratio discrepancy. Right, but I mean, what what he's getting at here is how this is mystified because it's not it's not something that the um, the controllers of the substances, the material substances, are can control right these are these are <laughs> facets of the the way we operate in the price form is that like how you were talking about um the input being determined by the output yeah he does he does go into that later uh in the second section right um where he talks about the product of one form uh, of labor replaces another i mean he does he brings that up later he's always doing that where he's sort of hinting at the next argument he's gonna make He's also quoting himself constantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was about to say that. I look at the footnotes <laughs> and it's like, read my work two years ago. <laughs> yeah, read my sewer. I'm listening to the audio book and it's like, it, it, it like reads the footnote and it's like Karl Marx. <laughs> laugh every time. Like he just did it again. <laughs> I'm so damn right. I quote myself. Yeah, he makes the modest claim. What is it that David Harvey says? He makes oh, the that he's like claim. the very first one. Yeah, <laughs> he does it twice in the same chapter. <laughs> but okay, that that actually cleared that up for me. The exchange ratio discussion we just had. No, but the thing is that like I, I read this and I was like I forgot how crucial this was. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. I actually like I have no highlights on that section except for price is the money name of labor realizing commodities, and I think I did not see how important the two paragraphs after that were. Um, 
But so it's basically that you can embody the socially necessary labor time, but because of the whole price form we have right now and everything, we are no longer in control of setting that price form in accordance to what socially necessary labor time was embodied in it. And it's outside of our hands. It's outside of the producer's hands or the people who own uh, a certain commodity to set that price. Right. And the exchange ratio that he that he talks about with the uh, social necessary labor time of one quarter a week to two pounds may be either the actual magnitude of value or the more or less accidental uh, deviation in quantity of gold from that value. So just a question. When I say exchange ratio with money, do I mean price? Is that just a fancy way of saying price? I mean, when you say exchange ratio, you mean the X commodity to Y money commodity. Ah, so it is like the Y is the exchange, like the Y over X is the exchange ratio. And I don't know that the Y in that case is the price for X commodity A. Right. But I mean, this is, this is, this is the problem, right? Because if let's say that you didn't use price uh, to measure uh, abstract value, then say the universal equivalent wasn't money, it was just literally labor time, right? Then in a closed system, it wouldn't be mystified. You would have the exact magnitude of value every time. You wouldn't have a deviation in the form of quantity of gold from the value. Oh, okay. It's because the value of gold and all that can also fluctuate or whatever. Like there are certain external conditions that make having sort of money as a universal equivalent uh, obscure a lot of social relations that came to this exchange ratio. Yeah, money kind of acts as like a dampener on a He's... lot of the maleffects of all that. He says it in the beginning. He says every trace of a value relation disappears in the names, right? So when you have, yeah, so you don't know basically, <laughs> and unless you you unless you know the input, you cannot know whether or not the output is the real value magnitude. So I don't know much, for example, about the uh, marginal theory that came out after, but wasn't that like a certain response? to Marx and his yeah, labor theory. Yeah, no, no, it was. It was, right? And it basically accepts, not, not it, but like, let's just say any theory responding is, is trying to accept the fact that money has that power. No, yeah, but but the, in the marginal uh, economics, uh, this isn't seen as a mystification, really. So marginal economics, what does that depend on? Is that the supply and demand? Like it heavily relies on that as a set for price, basically? I mean, that's where uh, demand is defined as the marginal, uh, marginally socially uh, beneficial uh, consumption. And the uh, supply is defined as the uh, marginal cost to producers, I think. And then you find price like that. And it's like a definite value. Yeah, and that hides everything behind it, basically. Yeah, like because that, I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> what yeah. the hell? Like, yeah, <laughs> then yeah, you're saying no, exactly. that this is the value it is, and but it, but it's constantly fluctuating. Yeah. So how the how does that even? <laughs> is that something that we would want going forward in the future? This de demystification of the value of everything and everything to be exchanged at its actual value, like equal to the socially necessary labor time. Well, it's possible now because we have the computing power.
Because the thing is that in is order it, to know the true magnitude, you have to know all the inputs, right? Which is hugely complex. Is that something they were looking at doing with Project CyberSign in Chile? Yeah, yeah, I think that was uh, the first. They trial also did it in, in the Soviet Union. Oh, they did, but okay. only for uh, five thousand products. Okay. Oh, okay. Because they were like literally individual people with calculators doing it. Oh shit! Yeah, that's a lot of work. So like each person had like I don't know like twenty products to keep track of, <laughs> and it's yeah. a lot of math and a lot of tables. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's sad that now we got the computing power and basically nobody's using it for that end. Yeah. All right, just a quick poll then. We didn't actually go into section two at all, like because we would have to start with sale and uh, purchase, and I don't know. Do you want to go into that, or do we want to cut off and go into that in the uh, next session? I was going to suggest that we end at section one as well. Yep. I would really like to just spend some time on the CMC, MCM differences beyond the chapter, because there's like some additional reading I need to do on that. <laughs> I took a ton of notes on that, so I could kind of give a brief rundown there. All right, that sounds actually good. So if you just give a brief like uh, summary or rundown of it, what it is, and we'll that's what we'll go in depth in the next session. All right. Um, so when Marx is talking about the metamorphosis of commodities, what he's really talking about are the parts of purchase and sale. So um, the first equation he gives us, uh, as you said, is where you turn commodity into money. And that's, that's what he calls the first metamorphosis, sale. Uh, this person who just exchanged whatever their uh, wheat for linen, um, or rather their linen for gold, rather, sorry, um, then goes to the Bible salesman and wants to buy um, a Bible. So this completes the, the ring of exchange and makes it commodity to money to commodity. Um, he talks about how like the true result is actually like, C to C if this were like a barter um, type of exchange. But this is where you start to see money functioning, as David Harvey calls it, the lubricant for circulation. The whole process of this, like he first describes it as C to M to C, um, is actually really a kind of a cycle. He calls it an elliptical um, motion. So when he's talking about the second part where it goes, you know, back from the money to the, to the Bible, this is the M to C um, metamorphosis, which he calls the second or concluding metamorphosis, which concluding isn't entirely accurate because we know that it's an elliptical process ongoing with another thousand parallel purchases that are also you know, intersecting. So it's like we start to see him building this larger structure of exchange out of, out of just these simple letters C to M to C. All right. So we can go into that next time. Basically, we start. We'll deconstruct like each one of them on their own. Sale, which is C to M, and then purchase M to C, and then we can see how they tie in together and what they, how they work with each other, basically. Yeah, and he he explains later on as these things develop, it kind of gets turned onto its head, where it becomes, um, like since um, buyers have so much more like 
proportional power in the relation of exchange because it's much easier to buy than it is to, to sell. Um, he talks about how the equation gets inverted and becomes actually a, a money to commodity to more money circulation of exchange. And that's what kind of brings about um, when he finally starts talking about uh, debtors and creditors and all that good stuff, which I that was some really interesting stuff. Yeah, I only watched the Harvey lecture, but that was really like that was starting to get really interesting there. Yeah, that's the capitalist circuit, right? MCM. Yeah. Money can act as capital when it produces money only acts as capital when it produces more money, basically. Yeah, because it invests in the holy commodity labor. Hey, that was Proles of the Book Club. If you want to support our parent podcast or join the book club, you can ship in a buck to the Proles of the Roundtable Patreon and join us in the Discord server. We're on Twitter at Proles Book Club, and if you have any questions or need companion resources we haven't already linked, just DM us there. Thanks to the Craigbot for helping us record in this Discord, and thank you to Keenan for the intro theme. Next week, we'll be continuing Chapter 3, and we will see you then.